Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. Uh, very be pleased to be joined again by Richard Rushfield, one of my favorite guests, uh, the author of The Ankler Newsletter. Uh, make sure you sign up for The Ankler. It's great if you want the Hollywood inside scoop. Uh, and I wanted to get Richard on the show today because he uh, went to CinemaCon last week, and I want to get the inside scoop of what's going on at CinemaCon. First off, can you explain to, to folks out there what exactly CinemaCon is, what it was like four years ago and what it is now? Uh, the 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 difference between the two, the uh, well, so so what it is technically is the the national convention of uh, theater owners. So that's it, actually international now. So it's uh, the the uh, Motion Picture Association of uh, of America and and NATO, as they call it. I never found out why they they pick the same name as the other NATO, considering there's a big uh, yeah. organization called NATO, but the national uh, Association of Theater Owners uh, throws this annual gathering, and um, as recently as uh, as even three years ago, it was where the movie studios uh, sort of came on bended knee and uh, begged for the good graces of of every little multiplex owner in America. They come in the uh, they, it's, it's held at Caesar's Palace, and they they spend a week sitting in the Colosseum, which I think is a four thousand seat theater. And they literally they fly in every star they've every studio does a presentation, and they fly in every star they've got from around the world. I think internationally there's there's almost no shooting that week because every star has to be brought in there at, at enormous expense. Uh, and each studio spends about three hours presenting their slate of films for for the year for them, and they show they show clips from them or they debut the trailer and then they bring out Dwayne Johnson to tell some jokes and uh, and everything. That's what it was recently three years ago. Um, This year it was pre-recorded videotapes of the distribution heads saying hey uh, we got a great slate and uh, so glad you all could make it to Vegas and uh, you know check out check out the popcorn on the way out. Yeah. Uh, so like to, to kind of put it in in terms in other terms, like it it's a bit like Comic-Con, like San Diego Comic-Con, but for theater owners. Right. I mean, that that's kind of how I've always understood it. Uh, exactly. It's it's um, they, they all come together and they all see what's coming up from the year's movies. And and, and they have uh, I mean, the 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 the, uh, the fun part that everybody likes when they go there is they have the trade show floor where all the people who have invented new kinds of movie candies uh, have little booths and they hand out um, they hand out samples of uh, Jack Daniels flavor junior mints or whatever the heck it is uh, it's um, and and you, you get to try all the all the the movie snacks of the future um, but it's it was it was very much a uh, the theater owners sort of making the the studio heads come and uh, bow before them and perform for them and 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 uh, and, and and try to secure their blessing there. Mm-hmm. And it, we should explain why exactly they have to do this. How how exactly it is that uh, distributors and the theater owners actually kind of interacted with each other and, and decided who gets what screens. So, so, so that is uh, that is one of the that has traditionally been one of the most uh, 
dark and mysterious parts of uh, of uh, the movie business, where it, and it's really done in a way that hasn't changed in seventy years. It's that every for every movie that every studio has a regional distribution head that goes for every single movie goes to you know the the person who owns a uh, a dozen a dozen theaters in southwestern Kentucky and negotiates what screens they will get and what and what the split of revenue is and how many trailers can be shown in front of it and all this stuff is negotiated sort of theater by theater um uh, theater by theater, film by film. And it's uh, it, this is why it's very hard for um, a little startup to get into the uh, to get into the movie business uh, naturally, to get them distribution, because you have to have so much apparatus. And you, ha- you, also have, you also have to have, if you have the clout of, if you're uh, Disney and you say, hey, if you want Avengers in, in your film, in your theater, instead of just going down the block, you're going to... You're going to take uh, Mary Poppins Returns too, and you're going to give it the best screens also. So mm-hmm. if you're so if you're a little startup that has two movies coming out that year, you're going to get the worst screen. You, you can notice. So the the you, the way it, you can test this when you go to a theater, you can see where the power. So the bigger the movie is, and the smaller the the, the theater is, the, the less trailers will be in front of it. So mm-hmm. if you go to an Avengers movie at a little locally owned theater, they'll have like two trailers in front of it. If you go to some uh, independent movie at an AMC, it'll you'll have like three hours. There'll, there'll be more trailers yeah. than our movies. There. That's interesting. That's interesting. I didn't I didn't know that 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 it the uh, the you know arguments went down to that final level. All right, so uh, so CinemaCon is where the, th- the theater owners and the, the moguls come together and they hash everything out, what we're going to see, when we're going to see it, et cetera, et cetera. But as you mentioned in your newsletter, it is... Uh, it is a much diminished thing this year. What was what was the vibe like on the floor uh, at CinemaCon? So I'll tell you, I, 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 yeah, I, I, I'm actually uh, actually slightly behind the time. We we had spoken last week when I was on the brink of going to CinemaCon, mm. uh, and at the last minute, uh, as my children are back in school and uh, getting tested twice a week for yeah. uh, for for COVID and uh, one positive test in there. And, and they're take they're sent home for three weeks. Uh, at the last minute, I I, I had a uh, I had a, a a a attack of either responsibility or or faintheartedness. Oh no! So I did not. So I attended uh, virtually, like like okay, okay, almost all the executives who presented. So I was yeah. I was following very closely this year, but from afar, unfortunately. Well, what were the what were the presentations like this year compared to to years past? What would I you know it was it it was interesting to read your 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 take on uh, how everything sounded because it all sounded very very depressing. Yeah, I mean you you had no stars. That's that's the big difference uh, in in past. You know, you would you would literally have Warner Brothers have fifty stars on that stage. You would have everybody like out there parading before them and they would and you would you would have the head of the studio interviewing uh doing a little shtick with with Dwayne Johnson out there and now you had for this year you had you had the distribution heads uh present little clips of the movie and that was it um mm-hmm. so it was completely the 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 luster and the gloss and the, 
the sense of uh, you are the important people we're catering for is com- was completely gone. Yeah. What was uh? So did you did you get to actually see the clips? The only clip that I heard of that I was even remotely interested in was uh the Matrix Four clip because we haven't seen image one from that movie. There there is nothing. There is no word on the street from Warner Brothers or any anyone else about that film. And they they they, they debuted the uh the, the title of it right was it yes what, the Matrix what, what, Resurrections Resurrections yes, yes. That, that will change everything uh, that hasn't gone up online so I I haven't seen that okay. yet um I the uh, being a being a cold eyed business reporter I I I, uh, I just I just like to see the, uh, yeah. the studio executives looking nervous there yeah and all that but the 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 I guess the big one that um. That the 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 two things that seemed to get the most attention, uh, besides besides Matrix, were they they showed ten minutes of the Bond movie, mm-hmm. which which seemed to get very little response that I saw. Yeah, it seemed to seem to just sort of be noted. We got it, and and the new Spider Man trailer, which broke YouTube records instantly. Yes, uh, huge there, huge. Uh, well, it was. I mean, it's it's interesting because you know everybody keeps talking about. No Time to Die, the new James Bond movie. And I, I like I feel like I've been tr- seeing trailers for this movie for three years now. Every yeah. time I've been in a theater for the last, you know, uh, in 24 months, probably it's there's been a, a trailer for this dang movie. Uh, so I, it just it, it it it's never going away. And, and and I don't get in the in the best of worlds. I don't get any sense that anyone under under uh, 40, say, gives a damn about this movie. And you yeah. think about, I mean, Daniel Craig isn't even the fresh new Bond anymore. He's been on it for 15 years at this point. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, the, the, you know, the, the way they have traditionally tried to make these films relevant to, to, to new generations is with uh, the song. They get a contemporary pop singer to do it. But the Billie Eilish song, um, that's, that's traditionally where they start the run up to it. But they 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 had the misfortune of the Billie Eilish song they debuted just before COVID yeah. struck, uh, and then they had to scrub the whole thing, so they can't roll out that song again, which which seemed to be uh, seemed to be a stinker regardless. So, <laughs> yeah, well, there was there was one big star at CinemaCon. We have to talk about him, Tom Rothman, yes. uh, showing up. Showing so Tom, tell people who Tom Rothman is, I, because I know I'm saying Tom Rothman like he's a household name, but uh, I know <laughs> I know more be. more more folks more folks out there probably don't pro- probably don't know him than do. Uh, who who is Tom Rothman uh, in 30 seconds? Tom Rothman is the uh, chairman of of uh, Sony Pictures Entertainment. He was formerly uh, head of head of uh, the studio chief of Fox. Uh, a job he was fired from by Rupert Murdoch, and he's been out to sort of redeem himself and and prove himself at uh, by taking over uh, after taking over the uh, Hollywood's worst performing studio. And he's a very uh, he's a he's a notable character for being sort of the the biggest pain in the neck of all studio heads, the people that will harass. Um, who will harass directors about every penny spent on the set and sort of this this uh, this classic studio head. So I, I refer to him as in in the Ankler as uh, Ambi is his title. America's most beloved entertainment executive is my facetious nickname for him. Now I like I like Tom Rothman for a very specific reason, which is that he uh, he told China to go get bent when they were trying to get them to cut down on. 
uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, which, you know, uh, I, I'm sure he was contractually obligated to do uh, by Quentin Tarantino's uh, deal with the studio. I'm sure there's there was not a cut that could have been made to that movie without uh, QT himself signing off on it. But he, he did. He, he was game about it. He put on his brave face and. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and stood up for his guy. Uh, but he, Sony has an interesting place in the in the entertainment ecosystem right now where they are. Uh, well, talk, talk, talk about what they're doing right now with the, the tension between their theatrical, you know, commitment to theatrical, the fact that they don't have a streaming channel of their own and that they are also kind of serving as arms dealers for the other streamers. Yeah, that so that so so they're the one studio, one of the legacy studio, the one legacy studio left that does not have their own streaming service. So they've been selling off everything that isn't nailed down and everything that they can get a buyer for to to uh, so they've they've got now uh, two deals. Their their movies go go first to Netflix for two years and then they go to uh, Disney after that and. Um, the uh, nobody knew there were two tiers before this, yeah. Um, so yeah, they they they've tried to describe themselves as we are we are arms dealers in the middle of an arms race, and they're providing um, and they're providing movies to the highest bidder there, which which has some uh, which has some merit at a point right now where everyone's desperately trying to get something. Uh, the problem is eventually all these all these streamers are going to can just produce their own movies and and don't need to pay uh, Tom Rothman and his studio a commission and they can just get this themselves. so so uh, apart from the IP that they own which is basically Spider-Man and Jumanji mm. um, they're in real danger of being cut out at some point yeah plus Ghostbusters don't everyone's excited for Ghostbusters right that's Ghost right Ivan Reitman and, and and Jason Reitman were both were both up there uh, mm, debuting the, the the new the new Ghostbusters which which Seemed well received the the the, yeah. the clip I saw, but the, the yeah, I'll, I'll withhold judgment till we till we actually see it. So yeah. I, I, I just overall, what is what is the sense of of the state of theatrical? I mean, are, are is it as dire kind of as everybody seems to make it out to be, or is is this a a blip on the the horizon? I mean, short term, you've got you've you've got a sense that 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 people are going to want to get out of their houses they're going to they're going to come back that you have a this huge pile up of movies that were pulled from the last couple of years so there's going to be a ton of uh, a ton of movies out there and that people are going to come um rushing back towards them in the longer term you've got this competition from the streaming services and every studio is going to have these internal dynamics where uh where where they they want they, they, they want to send things also to the streaming service or maybe just to the streaming service right. because uh, from the Wall Street perspective, the streaming service is everything. They, Wall Street doesn't want to hear about theatrical. They don't care about theatrical. They want to see boosting. The, the, so it, it, I, st- the streaming services for studios, it's kind of like smoking sections were at restaurants. Like, like at first they said, okay, we just want this little – this little area for non-smoking, just a little place where non-smokers can be. And then they said, well, let, let, let's, it should be equal. Let's give it half the restaurant. And then soon it was smokers. You got to be out on the sidewalk. Uh, we don't have room for that here. And that that's how, that's how I see the dynamics in each studio between does a movie go to the theatrical or streaming. It's like right now it, it went from, no, it has to be just theatrical to 
to, well, people need choice, they need both. And uh, I think soon it will be like, why are we letting these these old dirty movie theaters take away money from our beautiful streaming services? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a depressing thought. I uh, there, as you, there, as everyone knows, I'm a I'm a theater partisan. So, hopefully but there's also the the fact you know there was a uh, there was that that survey uh, or that study a couple of months ago that people under forty, when they list their forms of entertainment, I think movies came in sixth. Like mm. way, way below, even TV was fifth. So even TV yeah. wasn't out there. Like way, way below everything else. So it's it's just, you know, the the the, the existential question here is, um, there's nowhere else in the society where we're, we're, we have we have a couple generations here that the idea of just like you're going to sit quiet in the dark, watching a story, and you're not going to be texting or 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 any or TikToking or anything during that, uh, you just wonder is that going to be tenable for very long? Yeah. Uh, well, so you you one thing that you mentioned when we were emailing today is that you're you're currently working on a a, a piece about how horror could be the you know the it's it's the one thing uh, that is still kind of getting people out to theaters, right? What what's what's up with original horror movies? So we, we we had last last week the the big winner was the uh, the remake of uh, Candyman, uh, sure. produced by by Jordan Peele there, and you've just you you got every couple months now for years you got you got you got example after example when people do something original and well made in horror, um, it becomes a phenomenon. It becomes you know not just a hit, but it it spawns you know twenty years of sequels and. And all sorts of that that those those always do well. And this Candyman had a Rotten Tomato score, I think, in the upper eighties there. Yeah. Um, so you know, it was it was it was very well received and well done, and it was an interesting, different twist. I I didn't see it. I'm scared of all these movies, so it means it means nothing to me. But uh, the um, but you know the 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 rap on Hollywood is that studio executives are always looking for some. For, for some dumb rule to take away from that, that mm-hmm. will guide everything. People people want movies with days of the week in the title, or people want yeah. movies with swimming pools, or whatever whatever it is. Um, the um, but you've had you you look at these these movies that have come along in the, in, the, in the last couple of years. It's Quiet Place, It, uh, the the Conjuring movies, uh, sure, all the all various. Don't Jason, breathe. Yeah, and and you you keep having these giant hits, and you would, and yet there's only really two studios, uh, Warner's and Universal, that are really in the, the the horror business, that 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 take this seriously. And with everyone else, it's just uh, you know everyone everyone else can't won't touch it. And you wonder if they're so desperate for rules and anything. This seems a pretty, it has almost a hundred percent batting average. Yeah, uh, I mean, is it is. Is it just a function of the fact that there's a there is a ceiling on horror box office? I mean, like outside of something crazy like it, right, which grossed three hundred million dollars the first. You're looking at a you're looking at a movie that you know it'll cost you five to twenty million dollars to make, but it'll it'll only only you know air quotes here gross a hundred million or one hundred fifty million. You know that's not the billion dollar home run that everybody wants. It's not the it's not the Chinese crowd pleaser. Um, these movies don't you know these movies don't uh, play in China, right? Like is that is that 
that part of the issue here? What are, What I do mean, you think it is? It's, they're not gonna They're not gonna squeeze out the superhero movies as long as long as that reign continues. Right. But but you know to have to have us for Universal to have have this sector as a steady earner is uh, means uh, means a heck of a lot. I mean that's a that's a huge thing in their bottom in their bottom line. And you know for for me it just comes out that the 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 rule is is always the, the thing that will guide a company most after all the reports and everything is when the head of that company goes go sits down at a dinner party what he wants to tell the person next to them that he's doing for a living and uh, these people don't like and they don't want to be in the horror business they've superheroes and and those tent poles these are big respectable things now it's not not the not the not an embarrassment like it might have been 40 years ago, but uh, they don't want to be making horror movies. And yeah. when they do do them, um, it's they're they're usually uh, they don't take them seriously, and they don't they don't make them well, and they don't they don't spend money promoting and supporting them uh, because yeah. they don't they don't they don't believe in them. Yeah, I mean, I've I've always thought it was was weird that you we don't see you know every two or three weeks a ten million dollar horror movie in the in the theaters because those always do really well and the one stu- another studio is is kind of doing this right a24 but a24's horror movies are you know art house horror it's like elevated horror right it's you know critically respectable and also you know the the ceiling on those movies is much much lower uh yeah. than than 20 than or 30 million compared to right 100 or 150 uh yeah but at least i mean you know they see the potential for this is a genre if you do something different then you'll get with within their spectrum, you know the, yeah. the, that that people will be interested in. Uh, the other interesting thing is that is that Netflix, having made you know nine hundred movies at this point, has never had a horror breakthrough. Yeah, and yeah, they, you know it's funny. I was I was talking about this with somebody else online, uh, and it's interesting because. Netflix just bought the rights to the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel reboot, whatever the 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 movie that that was supposed to come out last year, I think, um, and and has been held, you know, because of COVID and everything. And also, I, my understanding is it's a bit of a mess, uh, just as a as a piece of filmmaking. But the uh, but the but Netflix just just picked up that. And I said, you know, look, I it's it's interesting, but there's definitely a ceiling on Netflix stuff. Netflix horror doesn't do that well. The Fear Street movies, the first one did like pretty, pretty decent numbers. And then everything it cratered after that. It was a series of three films released, you know, kind of one after the other. Nobody nobody cared that much. Um, but the argument uh, a friend of mine made was, look, you, they've never had anything with the with the name brand appeal of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They're going to release it around Halloween time. I like this could be a this could be a huge hit for them. Yeah. And they've, they've never I mean, like not every horror movie in the theater does well. Every every well-made horror movie does does well. I mean, it's street, Screen Jams and Sony put out a horror movie every two weeks that nobody sees, and they're they're cheap. They don't support them. They don't they, uh, and and they 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 never break through. Um, it's it it's uh, you know it's for Netflix like where is their quiet place? Where is their like. Uh, for for their film division, you just get the sense like this this just until until recently this just really isn't the business they want to be in. It's yeah. just not is not what they feel like. They they want to work with Steven Soderbergh. They're not they're not yeah. looking for a slasher film. Which is interesting. I mean, I uh, 
Is it a function of age of audience? I mean, Netflix, in theory, appeals to all age groups, but I, I do, I get the sense that the stuff that they are making is explicitly designed to appeal to a slightly older audience, and the, 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 you know, the bread and butter of the horror business is, like, getting 17 to 25-year-olds into the theaters, right? Like, that's, those are the, those are the audiences that turn out for these movies. Yeah, I think film. I mean, in film, they're definitely. I mean, in, in film, they're definitely in the prestige trap, and and it, I mean, it's interesting because you you it, they're they're sort of in the prestige trap of two thousand and four. You you look at their movies every year, and they they make like all these very traditional sort of star vehicle, big budget, uh, Oscar. Oscar films and and that's actually not what even wins Oscar anymore. It's always it's yeah. it's it's now quirky, offbeat, and often genre genre films. Um, yeah. And uh, but but they 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 seem to have this traditional and with the with the uh, with the teens they seem they decided that the reviving teen rom coms is is what they is is the way to get them. And they seem mm-hmm. content to leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about Mike Richards and Jeopardy for a minute. Yeah. Uh, Mike Richards officially out at uh, as executive producer of Wheel of Fortune and or I'm sorry, was it Price of Right? Price of Price is Right and uh, uh, and yeah. Jeopardy. Um, and uh, this comes on the heels of him losing the uh, gig as the host of Jeopardy, which was a, a classic hubristic Icarus style. Uh, flying too close to the sunset. R- run, run us through uh, your your take on what you're hearing about uh, what folks have to say about Mike Richards and and the predicament he has gotten himself into here. I I, I know yeah you know, I, I don't I don't know if I have a representative sample, but I know a, a few people who worked for his game shows, and he was not uh, among these few people not not beloved, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And his his the the problems and issues that had brought him down were 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 things that they had uh, flagged a lot before this. So yeah. he, the, well, the, not beloved in what sense? I mean, was he just kind of a jerk to work for? Was he? Yeah. Was he, what was what was the deal with him? He was a jerk. He was considered a sexist. There was whisperings of harassment problems and a lot. I mean, more than whisperings because there were lawsuits and mm. um, and and also and. Uh, and he was just just considered this sort of smarmy, dismissive jerk. And uh, um, when so so you know being being that the being the executive producer of a of a game show is um, you know, that's about the best. The I mean that, that that's like being that's like college 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 tenure or something like. Mm-hmm. Like you, you get one of those jobs, and those things just go forever. And who the heck knows who's the producer of any of them? Like, right. no one can name anything. So you can, and you know, you're not getting maybe you're not getting host money, but you're getting you 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 live very nicely, uh, shall we say, to say the least. Um, and he could he could have just run with this forever, but he's he's always wanted to be a host. He wanted to he wanted to to be the host of. Uh, he became. I believe, if I'm getting this right, he he became uh, executive producer of Price is Right because he 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 tried out to be uh, the host when Drew Carey got it, um, mm. and he lost out Drew Carey. But they said we like you so much because uh, he came in with all these ideas and everything. Why don't you become the producer? So um, so he had to produce Joe 
Drew Carey show, and, and mm-hmm. one senses was always uh, looking for more. Chafing. And, yeah, and uh, so so the moment came, and he put himself forward, and uh, but I, I mean, part of that narrative though, he he put he certainly he put himself forward and he tried for everything, but you know he couldn't just do that alone unless he had the right. support of Sony and everyone else. He couldn't just announce that he was uh, going to become a host, and they all went along with that with apparently without doing a Google search of his past yeah. uh, before them. And, uh, and so it all came out and bit him. And now, and now he's lost, not just the host them, but he's, uh, he's unemployed and probably will never be employed again. And as a game show producer. Yeah. Well, I mean, have you heard from, have you heard from any of, uh, any of the folks behind the scenes since, since his, his disaster? I, I'm, I'm just curious if there's a lot of kind of gloating or if it's, oh, yeah. if it's yeah. more subdued. No, the, pe- the people that I know that work there are, are gleeful at his downfall. There's, yeah. uh, I, I haven't heard any, no one has had any sadness that they've, they've, they've shared with me about it. Um, yeah. and if, uh, you know the, the 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 charges against him are a mixed bag of stuff from sort of dumb comments to uh, hostile workplace accusations, but yeah. um, I think everybody just goes straight to he's a jerk. He shouldn't have been the. Yeah. Why was a producer going to be the host of the show? And it was considered the ultimate sort of uh, you know it became a sort of symbol of uh, of, of white privilege that this. Uh, that this this guy who's an executive suddenly decides like oh I should be the face of the show but yeah uh, yeah oh boy that uh, I mean just really it's it's one of the the craziest stories ever and and like you say like I there are like there are reasonable things he could have been disqualified for sexual harassment lawsuits that sort of thing um, but the the fact that it was a podcast that brought him down should give <laughs> all of us podcasters pause you know it's the one the one sin that you can never wipe clean uh, being a podcaster i mean uh, kudos to uh the reporter who had to listen through i mean how many how many hours of podcasts did she have to listen to awful uh to get to the offensive remarks i mean that's that's the safety of uh of a podcast and anybody wants to take you down has got to wade through a lot of a lot of uh uh, acreage of of, of uh, content to get to to get to when you're being offensive there. Yeah, that's that's one of those shows you throw on at a uh, you know 250 percent speed to get through. <laughs> uh, all right, Richard, thank you very much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, everybody again should subscribe to the Ankler Great Newsletter. Uh, you, you you go sign up and you'll be in the know uh, when it comes to Hollywood stuff, okay? Uh, I'm Sonny Bunch. I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then.